Hi, my name is Samuel, and this is Seems Hopeless. Last episode, we looked at the international effects of oil extraction, but in this episode, we'll focus on the environmental injustice surrounding sea level rise. More often than not, people focus on the large-scale impacts of a rising sea level, while overlooking the effect on the daily lives of individuals. In this episode, we explore sea level rise and how different communities will experience the consequences in drastically different ways. We talk about how in Georgia, for example, policymakers would rather look at sea level rise vulnerability through a technocratic lens, ignoring the cultural and social spatial aspect of the problem. As Zarya mentioned, oil extraction is just one of the many ways certain communities are affected disproportionately by climate change. While some people may bear the brunt of its consequences, others may even come to benefit. For example, some will see the ice caps melting as nothing more than an opportunity to access even more fossil fuels. Such is the case of sea level rise. As the latest projections of global warming point to an increase of 3.2 degrees Celsius by 2100, some regions of the world will continue to be disproportionately affected by the rising sea levels. For example, Asian cities will be the worst affected. In Shanghai, 17.5 million people could be displaced by rising waters if global temperatures increase by 3 degrees Celsius, while someone living in Atlanta will barely notice the difference. Part of what we want to show in this episode is just how disproportionately some communities are affected by sea level rise, and how I've personally seen it while living in Central America. But what exactly is sea level rise? Well, sea level rise is one of the most severe impacts of climate change. It is threatening to inundate entire island nations and coastal regions by 2100, so it's a pretty big deal. The global sea level has been rising for the past century, reaching a total of about 8 to 9 inches since 1880. Around a third of that increase occurred only in the past 25 years, meaning that the rate is only increasing. This rising sea level means that storm surges will push farther inland than they once did. To put it into perspective, US coastal communities today are experiencing disruptive and expensive nuisance flooding and estimated 300-900% to 900% more frequently than they did 50 years ago. Already, flooding in low coastal areas is forcing people to migrate to higher ground, and millions more are vulnerable to flood risk and other effects of climate change. There are two principal factors that explain why the global sea level is rising, and since the oceans absorb around 90% of the atmospheric heat caused by human emissions, both of these factors are due to heat. The first cause is thermal expansion caused by the warming of the ocean. Since water expands as it gets warmer, our heating oceans will occupy more and more space leading to a rise in sea level. The second factor is the melting of land-based ice. As the planet warms, glaciers and ice sheets will continue to melt, flowing into the ocean, making the sea level rise. As a result of sea level rise, coastal communities have been forced to begin adaptation planning and vulnerability mitigation. But even this is an example of environmental injustice. How should a city decide where funds should be allocated? Should they protect the area with higher economic value? Or should they assess how sea level rise may affect the everyday lives of people on the coast, especially in underrepresented communities? In a 2017 paper about adaptation planning in relation to sea level rise, Dean Hardy and others contend that Based on their 10 years of experience working on sea level rise research in Georgia, public projects are skewed toward assessing the physical, ecological, and economic impacts of inundation. So, instead of assessing how the rising sea level might impact certain communities, policymakers would rather look at the sea level rise vulnerability through a technocratic lens, ignoring the cultural and socio-spatial aspect of the problem. As communities, regulatory agencies, and policymakers plan for rising seas, they continue to overlook the history of racism that has shaped the socio-ecological formations of coastal regions. In several cases, it is because of this history that people have been forced to live in regions that will bear the burden of environmental hazards. By ignoring the past, this colorblind adaptation planning, as they call it, continues to be characterized by policies that benefit some populations while abandoning others. 
Unfortunately, this is just one of the many instances of environmental injustice in the face of sea level rise. The more typical scenario is one where a city deems it necessary to plan contingencies against sea level rise only for certain areas, and said areas just so happen to be the ones with the highest percentage of whites and individuals in the wealthiest income bracket. As I mentioned earlier, I live in Central America, and when I was six years old, my family and I moved from Argentina to Panama City, Panama. And it is here that I've realized that these skewed adaptation policies I mentioned earlier don't just exist in the US. Living in Panama for the past 12 years has allowed me to see firsthand the disproportionate effects of climate change. In Panama, environmental risk is unequally distributed in several forms, one of which being the rising sea level. Towards the north of Panama, near the Caribbean Sea, the San Blas archipelago is home to the Guna, an indigenous people native to Panama. As the sea levels continue to rise as a direct result of human-caused climate change, the Guna are the first to be affected. Living in low islands means that when the rainy season in Panama arrives, the Guna were used to having moderate amounts of flooding. Nowadays, however, things are very different. When recently interviewed, they say that any rain affects us because we are sinking. Here in Panama City, the most I suffer during the rainy season is two or three streets flooding, whereas the Guna have their very homes threatened. The Guna are having to pay for virtually everyone else's actions, while someone like me can continue living unaware of the consequences. This injustice and imbalance where the Guna are suffering for virtually everyone else's actions will only worsen their economic and social status in the country of Panama. As with many other indigenous and native people around the world, the Guna are not always treated as equal and this experience is reflected economically as well as socially. These continued environmental injustices will only worsen the Guna's position as a minority here in Panama. If the situation continues and the Guna do end up losing most of the habitable islands, the Guna will start to be seen not as the people indigenous to Panama and its rightful inhabitants, but instead as refugees of the consequences of climate change. If that doesn't scream environmental injustice, then I don't know what does. Hearing all these depressing stories about people in Nigeria facing famine because of oil pipelines, or the Guna in Panama losing their homes, this may make us think that there is little we can do. But even though climate change is inevitable at this point, what we do today can still prevent catastrophe. This has been Samuel, and thank you for listening to Seems Hopeless.